This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Five years ago, North Korea wasn't in the headlines much, and the notion of US reporters travelling to the country to see its president was so absurd that Hollywood made a comedy out of it. I spent a lot of time with Kim and I think he's not a bad guy. But since then, Donald Trump's unorthodox diplomacy has changed all that. This week I catch up with one of just a handful of foreign journalists ever to report from inside the so-called hermit state, not as a visiting correspondent, but one who was based there. But do we get a clearer picture these days of what's actually going on? And what do North Koreans themselves see these days in their media, which is still under total state control? In each of these dramas, there was a runaway who's frustrated by life. And there was always this emphasis on what it would do to your family if you ran away. So fascinating. But before that, typhoons heading towards Tokyo forced the unprecedented scrapping of big Rugby World Cup games this week. But the big scrap between Spark and Sky was definitely all on. Kia ora, good evening. For the first time in recent memory, an All Blacks match has been cancelled just days from kickoff. The tropical storm set to strike Japan has been deemed too dangerous for some World Cup games to be played. That was News Hub at 6 on Thursday night, leading with the news that the All Blacks and Italy game in Toyota had been called off because Super Typhoon Hagibis was heading for Honshu at about kickoff time. England v France was scratched as well, and Scotland against Samoa put in doubt too. World Rugby's big call was the lead story right across the media in this country that night, with the bulletins even featuring meteorological risk assessment from Steve Hansen. These guys have about 25 typhoons a year, so... And, and a heck of a lot of earthquakes. So in our planning, we had to take that into consideration. All black fans who'd made the trip hadn't planned on this, though, and they were given an airing on plenty of programmes, though they got short shrift from one morning report listener on Friday morning. And on the cancellation of the All Blacks game against Italy, Maureen in Christchurch tells us, those selfish and self-entitled rugby fans need to get a life. When in Japan, do as the Japanese do. Obey the authorities and stay inside. The lives of millions are in danger. Meanwhile, broadcasters were concerned about what they were entitled to. British rights holder ITV was livid about two home nations fixtures summarily scratched like that, and the All Blacks probably would have pulled an audience for them in the UK too this weekend. Likewise, Rai in Italy and TF1 in France were not best pleased either, and would surely be consulting the terms and conditions of their contracts, and possibly their lawyers. So were the primary rights holders here, though they were keeping their cards close to their chest, judging by this in RNZ's News Bulletin on Friday. RNZ News at one o'clock. Good afternoon, I'm Paul Brennan. Spark Sports says it's in close touch with its partners at the Rugby World Cup over the cancellation of tomorrow's All Blacks game. Spark Sport has the rights to show the tournament in New Zealand and RNZ News asked if it will consider asking for compensation as a result of the cancellations. The company says it cannot comment on contractual matters. But it was also a bummer for Spark's free-to-air TV partner, TVNZ, which swiftly announced on Thursday after the cancellation it was replacing its delayed coverage of the Italy game with a recap of the cup called The Story So Far. Now, one of the stories so far for the media has been the repeated streaming failures in Spark's live coverage online. This week there were stories about people threatening to go to court over those and even complain to the Commerce Commission and there had been fears that all these problems and the bad PR might have actually put Spark off any further incursions into sports broadcasting. But up until the cancellation of this weekend's games this was the big news.
Accessibility to a wider audience has been at the heart of New Zealand Cricket's decision to sign a six-year deal with Spark Sport and TVNZ. The media and technology companies have agreed to cover all international and domestic games at home. The current deal with Sky Sport runs until the end of next season. NZC Chief Executive David White explains their rationale. I guess the key for us is making the game relevant for the future. We believe the platform combination between the three of us is exciting and we will um, be more accessible to New Zealanders. Now by that, Cricket New Zealand's boss meant more accessible than pay TV titan Sky, which had held those rights for almost 25 years and whose counterpart wasn't happy, according to Newstalk ZB. White says he's broken the news to the boss of Sky Television. I spoke to Martin Stewart this morning. Um, He was disappointed. Sky's still involved with cricket. In July, they signed a six-year coverage deal with Cricket Australia. Straight after that on News Talk ZB, the long-time sports journalist Phil Gifford and his co-host Simon Barnett zeroed in on what this meant for viewing fans, splitting top-level cricket coverage between two subscription services on different platforms. The Ashes is played, of course, offshore, yep. and the Boxing Day Test is played in Australia. Now, they will still be on Sky. So right. if you're big fans of the overseas cricket that New Zealand plays in, then you'll still have to get your Sky subscription That's right. to see them play offshore, but onshore you'll need your Spark subscription. Correct. So now we're getting pretty expensive. And then there was that problem that the Rugby World Cup streaming so far had thrown into sharp relief. So here's the big thing. The rural community, as we've heard, are pretty upset about this. They love their cricket, and for many they can't even get the broadband, the fibre that's required. Yeah. So, so well, what do you do about it, though? Well, venting to RNZ was one option, and here's Tracy from the recently formed group The People Against Spark Sport. To know that the cricket um, rights have actually gone to the same company who treat their customers uh, like the scum of the earth, it's, it's absolutely horrible. And after that, Telecom Users Association spokesperson Craig Young told RNZ streaming cricket fault-free is another degree of difficulty again. We're now talking about a sport that can last for up to eight hours a day, um, against a rugby game which lasts for two, two and a half hours. And so that's going to require a reliable connection for that length of time. Um, but also, what about your data cap? So a lot of rural communities live with data caps when most of us in urban have got unlimited plans now. So that's going to be a concern as well. And let's not forget test cricket, which takes five days. So you've got five days of eight hours of high-quality streaming that you're going to need a reliable connection but also um, a big data plan. Now, upselling customers to an unlimited plan, where it's possible, with a bit of cricket chucked in as part of the package, is surely part of Spark's plan. But the problem goes further than just a weak stream. What about the presentation for such an unpredictable sport? While weather knocking out Rugby World Cup matches caused chaos, it's a fairly regular thing in cricket. Production values are critical, as veteran sportscaster Brendan Telfer pointed out on 9 to noon last Thursday. And you can ask anyone from Sky Television, TVNZ or TV3, and they'll tell you it takes years to get all of the productions all the production parts up and running efficiently, professionally and consistently and it takes years to get this this act right and so I would have thought the prudent thing for cricket to do would have been just to have stayed with Sky for a little longer and see how Sparks develop. It's got to be money isn't it? But it, in as the we, end, we discussed suppose, this morning it's yeah, got to be they offer them exactly. more than they could, and, than they could turn down. Uh, you know, New Zealand cricket doesn't have the income that New Zealand rugby does, it relies heavily on overseas kind of monies from places like India and the ICC 
sea uh, to be able to compete and survive. And so along comes Spark with a huge big check, clearly greater than what uh, Sky were prepared to offer. So they've taken the money. Um, and I think also this is whether we like it or not, Catherine, this is the shape of things to come. That as more and more of these providers get into this market to deliver television uh, or to d- deliver sport on television and other devices, um, we're going to have to pay more. Now, previously, Mike Hosking at News Talk ZB called Sparks Rugby World Cup coverage crap, but. After Sky's share price plunged on Thursday, he gave Spark 8 out of 10 for its bold move the next morning. Spark Sport 8. Yes, indeedy. If you didn't take them seriously before, now's the time to start and another bad day at the office for Sky. But in fact, Sky was already having a better day at the office that day. Within the hour, Sky had announced it had extended its exclusive deal for international cricket for the next four years, on top of that six-year deal with Cricket Australia, all to help fill that dedicated channel for cricket it launched earlier this year. And by the afternoon, the New Zealand Herald was reporting that Sky would likely retain its crown jewels, rights to the All Blacks, Rugby Championship and Super Rugby matches, currently the cornerstone of its business. The Herald reckoned that the deal for that, through to 2025, would cost more than $400 million, and that's more than the current value of the entire company going by the share price on that day. Now, Sky wouldn't confirm or deny if such a big bid was really on the table, though they wouldn't have been worried about the signal that it sent out, having already lost the rights to domestic cricket, English Premier League football, hockey and Formula One to Spark Sport recently, and then watched them take on the Rugby World Cup in partnership with TVNZ. And the same afternoon, the state-owned broadcaster joined the PR fray with a statement headed, Cricket, Rugby and the Strength of TVNZ. This boasted about upcoming T20 internationals showing on TVNZ1 and the Duke Channel, and it claimed that 2.3 million New Zealanders had so far tuned into its free-to-air coverage of the Rugby World Cup. And that's the kind of accessibility, presumably, that New Zealand cricket was talking about when they turned their backs on Sky TV this week. And TVNZ will be looking forward to pulling in the biggest TV audiences of this year on old-fashioned TV1 when the All Blacks resume in Japan at the quarter-final stage. And beyond that, into the semi-finals and the final live on free-to-air TVNZ. Further typhoons permitting, of course, unless the opponents blow the All Blacks away on the pitch. When Korean-American journalist Jean Lee visited New Zealand five years ago and dropped in on us here at MediaWatch, she had one of the trickiest jobs in world journalism, establishing and running the first international news agency bureau in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. That country was rock bottom in every index of global press freedom, and people there even needed government permission to speak to international journalists. So five years ago, the idea of Western journalists getting anywhere North Korea's leader was absurd. Indeed, back in 2014, Seth Rogen made a comedy movie about journalists being invited to North Korea to meet Kim Jong-un. Hello, who this? This is the Secretary of Communication for North Korea. Our Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un is interested in doing an interview with Dave Skylark. Hello, North Korea! I spent a lot of time with Kim and I think he's not a bad guy. Five years later, thanks to Donald Trump's unorthodox diplomacy, North Korea has been in the headlines much more, and Gene Lee has been back in New Zealand, this time as an analyst working for the Washington-based think tank, the Wilson Centre. She told Catherine Ryan on 9 to noon, recent diplomatic developments had startled even her. 
in 2016, when President Trump was a presidential candidate and was campaigning and said, yeah, I will buck the trend and and be willing to sit down with Kim Jong-un and have a burger with him, I, I sat up and took notice and thought, and I know the North Koreans didn't, I thought, this is going to be interesting. And he has really bucked past president and done things very differently. And while I don't agree with the way he's done things, I do think that the only way forward is to take advantage of that. Jean Lee went on to tell Catherine Ryan how setting up the Pyongyang Bureau for the Associated Press and running it was exhausting, and they chatted about where the current diplomatic initiatives might lead. But now that North Korea is much more newsworthy and her former employers have a permanent presence on the ground in the capital, is the world getting a more reliable picture in the media of what's really happening in North Korea? This week I asked Jean Lee about that, and also whether the media diet of people inside North Korea, where the media is totally state-controlled, was also changing with the Times in any meaningful way. The Bureau is still there. We've had very few journalists go in since then. Uh, and unfortunately, I would have liked to have seen that that uh, Bureau expand. Uh, but I think it just shows how challenging it is to maintain the kind of access that I had. And so the pressure uh, will be on the next Bureau chief who's in charge of that operation to establish his own personal relationship with the North Koreans and the North Korean staff and really try to push the envelope. You know, it's a very personal decision when you're on the ground in North Korea, whether you choose to push the envelope and really push for better access or whether you stick to the guidelines that are laid out. Because at any point, if you decide to push, you know, the government could say, well, sorry, we're going to take away the license, close the bureau, and there'd be nothing you could do in a a state as authoritarian as, as that one. Exactly. It's very hard. Each journalist has to make that decision for himself, for herself, how far they want to push, what kind of, how they want to conduct themselves. I I think it's just very stressful to constantly push. So I suppose perhaps not to the kind of breakthrough you and the rest of the world's journalism community might have hoped for, but of course, maybe you didn't know what to hope for because it was a step into the unknown. Precisely. You know, I was the first one, which is always the toughest, I think, in the sense that you have to blaze that trail. Uh, but I hope that I laid a path and at least blazed that trail so that other journalists can follow in my footsteps and, and pick up the baton. Uh, we have a couple of journalists who've made a number of trips. Uh, CNN's Will Ripley has made quite a number of trips, uh, not having established a bureau, but as a visiting correspondent. And I should point out that the French news agency, AFP, since I left, has opened a bureau there. And so we do have another Western news outlet in Pyongyang. Uh, again, the AFP bureau chief in Seoul is the one who's in charge of that operation in Pyongyang. So he goes in from time to time for a few weeks at a time to manage that operation. Uh, their photographer has done very good work at Jones. So since my time, we have seen the expansion of that little foreign press corps. Uh, I would like to see more, but this is a time in journalism where we don't see a whole lot of new bureaus being established overseas. Uh, and um, I would like to see more correspondents on the ground. At the moment, we have too few. Coincidentally, the time you were last here, that movie The Interview had just come out where the thought of journalists travelling to the country was thought to be so outlandish um, that it was part of the plot of this uh, this strange comedy. Uh, I mean, since then, it's no longer so outlandish, is it? That is one thing that has changed our perception and our understanding of Kim Jong-un. He really kept himself apart in those early years while he was trying to consolidate, working on consolidating power. Uh, and so that 
meant that he was a little bit more, he was really kind of a caricature in the minds of the Western world. And that's how something like the interview even came about. The fact that we saw the leader of North Korea as a cartoonish figure, I mean, many people still do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's much more real to us now because he stepped out onto the international stage. He it has been now more than a year. He f- made his first uh, diplomatic debut, really, in 2018 by meeting with the South Korean president in the DMZ um, last spring. And since then, it's been kind of a steady PR push on his part to emerge as, as a diplomatic statesman. And that, in some sense, has normalized him. So we've gone kind of the opposite direction. I think five years ago, we really saw him as a cartoonish figure. He wasn't real. He was somebody who was in this far-off country that was very mysterious to us and somewhat of a cartoonish character. But now he's much more real to people. And I would say that we've gone perhaps the other direction in, in that He's. we've normalized him in a sense. And there's a danger to, to that as well. We should always remember that he is the leader who carry, is a leader who does carry out fairly repressive policies toward his people. And uh, we shouldn't forget the human rights issues that remain a concern uh, and then have not been addressed in in this diplomacy. So is it possible that because of this diplomacy and the, the unusual character of these two leaders has distracted the world's media in a sense? Because I can recall, um, you know, 20 years ago, I used to work at BBC World Service in the UK. And back then it was very difficult to get – there were reports that there were famines at that time. There'd been poor harvests. It was very, very difficult, apart from perhaps the Red Cross. There was very few channels to get accurate information about that. Now we see images of diplomacy and we see images from Pyongyang, which is not like the rest of the country. Is that not being told any better than it was, say, five years ago? We have to be aware that by relying on the narrative provided by Pyongyang, that we are only getting one tiny piece and it is propaganda – and it's not to say that the images that we're seeing of the capital city uh, are fake. It's, it is true that we're starting to see more construction. There are more cars, taxis, certainly more consumer products in the capital. The capital is really the center of the elites, and their lives are improving. For me, though, what we lack when we don't have correspondents on the ground uh, is what's happening in the rest of the country. And our international correspondents like AFP, Agence France Presse, or AP, your former organization, are they any more able to tell that story now that they're established in the country? If they push for it, if they push for that access, they can um, get out to the countryside. But I do think it's important for us to uh, show what life is like for most North Koreans rather than just that 10%, the elites who live in Pyongyang. We need to understand how the rest of the population is living because if you look at the figures coming from aid groups on the ground from the United Nations, this is a population of 25 million 70% of them, according to the UN, struggle to get food on the table. Uh, And many of them are going without the basic necessities. And so we need to remember that though the picture that North Korea likes to present is one of strength and unity, uh, that we're only getting one piece of that puzzle and we need to make sure that we are fleshing that out with a more realistic view of what's happening to the rest of the population. And five years ago you told me that um, uh, North Koreans 
needed government permission, official permission to talk to an international reporter, um, and also that international reporters needed permission to travel around the country. Still the same five years later? Still the same. And that's one of the things we should remember that North Koreans do not have freedom of movement, freedom of speech, and foreigners do not either when they're on the ground. And that's something that certainly if North Korea starts to open up, which I hope they do, uh, that's something that we will need to continue to push for, not only for foreigners on the ground, but for North Koreans. It is a very difficult place to report. Uh, It is true that once you put a microphone in front of a North Korean, they are going to repeat only the propaganda because that is what is safest. So it's very hard to get an accurate sense for what's happening on the ground because they have to watch out for their own safety. They're very mindful of the fact that everything they say is being listened to and that they will be held accountable. And so that compromises the reporting that we do on the ground. However, it's when you can get away from that type of formal interview, if you can speak the North Korean dialect, and you can communicate with them that you might get a better sense for who they are as people, what their preoccupations are, what their concerns are. And so we do need to have uh, more of a pipeline of Korean speakers who are going into North Korea as well. And also you've mentioned uh, the training of journalists which is uh, in North Korea, which is fascinating. So AP um, helped out with that. I think there's even a, a New Zealander um, involved as part of that team. Um, I that- did. That's an interesting task, isn't it? Training journalists who presumably work for a completely government-controlled media. Part of my objective was for them to understand how Western journalists do journalism. We don't do propaganda. And by training these with these training sessions, I could explain to them how we do reporting in a sense so they could understand what kind of access we needed Mm -hmm. and how it is we go about our jobs. You know, they're so closed off to a certain degree. They see things through the filter of their own experience, their own system. Likewise, we do too. Just like it's unhelpful for us to look at North Korea only through our framework and our filter of being um, people who grow up in a, in a relatively free world. If we look at North Korea through our only our filters, then we're not going to understand North Korea. We have to also go... Uh, a little bit further and try to understand where they're coming from. Likewise, the North Koreans only see see things through their own experience. So by having Americans on the ground or working side by side by American uh, or foreign journalists, they have a little bit of exposure to how how the rest of the world thinks and sees things. So it's very important to play that role because even when you look at negotiations now – Each side is looking at this situation from their own perspective. And until they understand the perspective of the other side, they're probably not going to be effective in that negotiation. We have to understand the person sitting across from us. Uh, So I had, yeah, I had some ulterior motives, which was give them a little training so they understand where I'm coming from and what it is I'm trying to do. Uh, But I should point out that North Koreans are actually hungry for training hungry for expertise. Uh, The average North Korean loves any kind of education they can get. They were keen to learn English. They were keen to learn all the technology that we were able to offer them. And this is something that, apart from journalism, I think we should be thinking about is if we do want the North Koreans to rejoin or to join, I should say, the international community in the future, economically, legally, we also need to give them the tools and the training to reach that goal, uh, to rise to the occasion. And that means understanding international law, 
understanding international business practice. And so that's a step in my new capacity working at a think tank that I am considering is... Okay. We as far want... as journalists can see, the really, really basic things as well. Like, for example, if you supply a photograph to a picture agency and it's digitally altered, they simply can't use it. It's, it's not usable. That might not even occur to them in a country where, you know, things are altered to fit in a state-controlled media. Uh, that's absolutely right. Some of it is, in the, in the framework of journalism, understanding what our standards are internationally in terms of photoshopping is something that I spent a lot of time trying to explain, that if photos are altered, that we have certain standards internationally uh, and that they need, to tr- they need to do their best to adhere to them if they want us to transmit their photos or share their photos. Uh, and I think they've improved on that front. That's one thing we discussed is how do you create photos that we can use internationally? So it's a small way to try to get them uh, to join the international fall, but it was our way. It was really our avenue. And finally, Jean, what's changed in the last five years or so since we last spoke about what North Koreans themselves get in their own media? Um, you'd be one of the few people, I guess, that could actually see it, understand it, read it, and interpret it, and whether the diets actually changed an awful lot in that time, given the high level of control of, uh, of what's published there? We are seeing some interesting things in the media, uh, certainly on state TV, playing around a little bit with technology, trying to modernize their broadcasts. But U.S. content and South Korean content are still largely banned in North Korea. Yeah, when we last spoke, I think Madagascar, the movie, <laughs> the Disney movie, had just screened in North Korea. And at the time I thought, well, so what? It's just a cartoon for kids. What impact would that have? And you were saying, no, no, look, here's talking animals describing you know, life in a New York City zoo. So it's a good step. So the only American content that we're seeing on state TV or that has, is sanctioned are these cartoons and animations. And it's a good first step. There's some interesting things that I've seen in North Korea as well. Uh, if you go to the SciTech complex, which is it's, it's a science center that Kim Jong-un has built. For example, they have these signs up, poster boards with internet addresses. Mm. And some of them advertise American scientific journals with oh. internet, with URLs. Uh, so it's interesting. So they're teaching them that these exist, th- these resources exist. But what they want to do is vet all those resources. So it's interesting what I've seen since the time I've been there is that they are bringing in more foreign material. But they're telling their people, let us vet it and tell you what's safe to read. So there is far more foreign content in in North Korea than we may assume. And the ability to share it through these uh, small networks. Their intranet portals. Mm-hmm. Um, they still don't have the kind of access that I would like to see. They can't just jump on the internet and Google. Most of them don't have access to the World Wide Web. Uh, but we're starting to see a lot more foreign content on their intranet sites. But in terms of daily newspapers, television, radio broadcast, still very much... Still pretty limited. ...official state news agency, KCNA, and lots and lots of news about the Supreme Leader. Exactly. If you go to KCNA, that's the state news agency website, it'll be full of coverage of Kim Jong-un, and um, uh, they do have some sections that do have some foreign news, but carefully vetted uh, to promote their propaganda. So you have to look at that as propaganda. What I find fascinating is looking at North Korea's soap operas. 
The the North Korean regime is all the propagandists are always looking for inventive and entertaining ways to promote party policy. And so I started looking at the soap operas because here's a way for them to promote party policy but make it fun. And and it's it's so much it's actually entertaining. So you get to see how they package it in a way to appeal to the masses because North Koreans are like any of us. They want a little bit of drama or a little bit of comedy or a little bit of humor um, with that messaging. And so I find that fascinating. I've been studying those soap operas as a way to understand how the policy is shifting, how the messaging is shifting under Kim Jong-un. And what sort of things do they insert into these soap operas to convey a message that they want the people to take on board? One of the interesting things is I do believe that under Kim Jong-il, the the late father of the current leader, they went through a, his rule lasted for 17 years. And one of the things that the regime did during that period was tell the people that he was their father, that they, their first loyalty had to be to the state rather than to their families. But I do think it resulted in a breakdown in the, fam, the fabric of traditional family life in North Korea. And perhaps made it easier for people to defect because by defecting, you leave your family behind. Mm. And one thing I've seen in North Korean soap operas is an emphasis on the family. And I think I would, I should, I see that as an attempt to return to the traditional family um, unit as being the most important structure, social structure. Because for 17 years, they tried to rip that apart and put the state first. So it's really interesting seeing the reassertion of the importance of family, which is a traditional Korean value. And one of the uh, reasons for doing this might be that it would then persuade people that it would be harder to leave the country or, or attempt to do it. Because That's my extrapolation be because in each of these dramas that I analyzed, there was a runaway. There was somebody who ran away, who was frustrated by life or by his situation, and it ranged in age. Sometimes they were children, children who were frustrated. And and there was always this emphasis on what it would do to your family if you ran away. So fascinating. And perhaps this was a proxy for defection. I just think that it's interesting that they're trying to address these issues so directly in their soap operas. And an acknowledgement in these soap operas that you know, for example, some of these characters have their own ideas and it's hard for them that they struggle to carry out the group mission. So an interesting acknowledgement of individualism and then giving them the tools through this propaganda, through these soap operas, which are propaganda, on how to deal with that. So it's fascinating if you look at it in terms of what, considering what they're trying to address and what they're trying to tell their people and how to deal with it. You see all kinds of things like power outages, how to deal with power outages, uh, how to deal with the self-criticism sessions. So all kinds of aspects of daily life are addressed in these soap operas. So even if you don't go to North Korea, just by analyzing the messaging that is transmitted to the people is fascinating reading and is is ripe for analysis. So even though I don't go back uh, as often now, I do try to try to keep on top of what's happening inside the country through sources like their state media. 
That was Jing Lee, who set up and ran the first ever international news agency bureau in North Korea for the Associated Press from 2012 onwards. Now she's an analyst and a director with the US-based think tank, the Wilson Institute. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we're back again at the same time next Sunday for Media Watch, here on RNZ National.